please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, beginning with verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he that is holy, he that is true. He that has the key of David. He that opens and none shall shut. And that shuts and none opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which none can shut. That you have a little power. And did keep my word, and did not deny my name. Behold, I give of the synagogue of Satan, of them that say they are Jews, and they're not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you did keep the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of trial that hour which is to come upon the whole world, to try them that dwell upon the earth, I come quickly. Hold fast that which you have, that no one take your crown. He that overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out from there no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God, And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and mine own new name. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please again join me as we pray. Lord, do indeed hear our prayer and give liberty to your servant, and give hearts of ready hearing and obedience to those who hear, both saints and sinners. Lord, come in power. Make your word real to us and give us understanding. Free us from the shackles of our sins and our mind's distractions. And let us sit before you tonight and be rewarded for coming and for hearing. Lord, we open our mouths wide and ask now that you, who alone can grant this request, would fill them. O Lord, you know my weakness. You know the weakness of those who hear. Come, O God, and have mercy upon us, and show it to us in granting us a sweet time in your word, and produce the good results of thorough repentance and complete faith in your dear Son. O Lord, open up the Scriptures to us now as you did the disciples of old. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
as we continue in our study of the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, I thought it good tonight to mention to you some of the reasons for this sermon series. Somebody, somebody may ask sometime, what in the world are we doing studying these letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor? Surely there are many more passages in the scriptures that are filled with much more teaching and practical instruction. How did Pastor Allen come to select this section from this relatively obscure portion of scripture and stay with it so long? And I thought it was timely for me to suggest that there are some reasons for this kind of selection. It is a difficult thing to select what we're going to preach, especially if we don't have the luxury of having regular ministries of more than one man, the one man who has the charge of having a balanced diet prepared for the people of God must be careful that he doesn't ride his own hobby horses, that he doesn't get into one train of thought and stay there too long. He knows the need for variety. He also needs the, knows the need for thoroughness. And he desires to select those things that are most appropriate at the time for the people that God's given him. But how in the world does he know? And the difficulty of pastoring is there's no magic way of knowing all the time what the needs are. A good pastor knows there are lots of needs all at once in the church. From those that are new Christians to those that aren't saved at all to those that have been in the faith for years. And so it's not easy. But in this case, I've selected this sermon series for several reasons. But among them are the following. I want to acquaint our church with a cross-section of representative churches in the first century which become representative of our own churches. And I want to acquaint you with these churches and with Christ's care for them and his charges to them so that you may find in their behavior your own behavior and so that you may find in his remedies for their sins the remedies for yours, and so that you may find in his comforts to them your own comfort. Now tonight we consider Philadelphia. It is my feeling that this may be the most typical of all the seven churches of the modern Reformed Baptist movement. Our church and those like us remind me more of Philadelphia than all the other seven. Now, I'm not one who believes, as some, that these churches each represent a segment in Christian history so that we're now in the Philadelphian age and so that this particular letter was written and applied only to this generation. I don't believe that, and I think we securely removed that theory when we went through the book of Revelation. Neither do I believe that any one of these churches is utterly identical to any particular church today, nor does it have to be. But there are in all seven of them representations of the major areas of responsibility in life in the church of Christ that if we understand them thoroughly, we can get our act together and keep it together if we're obedient. Nevertheless, Philadelphia and this letter from our Lord to this dear church seems to me to have much about it that's very typical of churches like ours. Now, there's one thing about Philadelphia that may not be true of us. The Lord had not one word of rebuke for them. There was nothing in the Lord's words to them that 
showed any sense that they had any area with which he was displeased in general. It's the only one of the seven in which there's not at least a hint that there might have been a problem. Smyrna being the closest to Philadelphia in that regard. But the Lord has no, no bad thing to say to them or of them. He has no rebukes. He has no displeasure in them. I wouldn't say that that's true of us. I think the Lord uh, has many things about our church that he wishes to see changed and developed and matured. I don't think that it would be a harsh thing coming from his lips to us, but I don't think that he would overlook certain mentions of things like, I have somewhat against thee. Uh, you need to strengthen this, adapt this, change this. I don't like that. And yet, generally speaking, this church in Philadelphia has a lot to say to us. Now, the Philadelphian church was the smallest and the weakest of the seven churches of Asia Minor. They were beset with persecution. They were ostracized and opposed and blasphemed and reviled by a great collection of the Jews who lived there in the synagogue who claimed to be God's chosen people. And this little church of Christians, some of whom probably had been Jews, and as Jews were now following their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, had come under great stress. And yet this little church had maintained its integrity so as not one word of reproof is spoken against it, though it had indeed been in the midst of this opposition. This little church, which by the world's standards had little to offer, this little church, which by the world's standards had little influence and was weak, has the highest commendation and promise from our Lord. My heart is especially tender toward the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia because one is the poor little rich church. The world despises it, but the Lord delights in it. And this other is small and weak, and yet the Lord sees in them strength that others would not see. Now, brethren, I have seven pages of sermon notes. And for me, for those of you who may be familiar with my sermon notes, that could sound very ominous. But I do not intend tonight to preach to the end unless we can do it within a relatively reasonable period of time. But these seven pages represent about a third of what I'd like to be able to deal with and treat in this letter. The epistle to the Philadelphian church is full of wonderful things. And there's so much I'd like to be able to do. So the biggest task in preparation has been what to leave out. As always is the hardest part of preaching. What do you leave out? And so I've left out a lot. So I trust that if your minds are fertile and we travel through and you think of things as I often do that you'd like to say or wish I were saying that you'll bear with me because I'm trying to hone in on a particular emphasis that I think is overriding in this letter. Now, I've divided it up into a few sections. First of all, I want us to consider the author of the letter. Second, I want us to consider the comfort of the letter. And third, I want us to look at the promise of the letter. The author, the comfort, and the promise 
of this letter. In the first place, then, consider with me the author of this letter. And as it is the case in all these letters, the Lord introduces himself with certain designations and characteristics that are designed particularly and specifically for this church's needs. He says in the first place, these things, says he, that is holy. The Lord introduces himself to the Philadelphian church as he that is holy. Not merely that he has holiness. Not merely that he occupies or possesses the attribute of holiness, but he who, by definition, is the Holy One. He that is the Holy One. He is holy. Remember in the book of Isaiah, several times is mentioned the Holy One of Israel. And in the prophets we are told, Neither will thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. He is the Holy One. There is no one else that can be called that but one, God. Remember when he said, Why callest thou me good? There is one good, God. And here he calls himself the Holy One. He that is holy. But he also says, He that is true. And it means the same thing. Not just one who tells the truth, which he always does. Not just one who has the truth and is truthful, but the one who is himself the true one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Not merely possessing the attributes of holiness and speaking truth, but he is holy, capital H, and true, capital T. By definition, terms referring to what is really true of only one, namely, God. These titles, then, he that is holy and he that is true, which can only be given to God, give credence to the following claims that come in this letter to his sovereignty. Now, before we consider the next statement regarding his identity, I want to say another word. Something's on my heart. I've asked God to give me boldness to say it the way I mean it because I don't want to be mistaken as feeling harsh or divisive or negative. This is a matter that is greatly concerning to me, and I do not speak it to those of you who are not members of the church in order to discourage you or to cause resistance. But I must say this to you. These sermons that I'm preaching, just as these letters that we've read and are reading from the Lord, are not primarily sent to those of you who are outside the church of Christ. I think you need to hear that. I want you to understand it. If you're not a faithful member of a church that is preaching the truth of the Bible and following Christ consistently, 
There is a sense in which these letters have nothing to do with you. And there is a sense in which these sermons have nothing to do with you. Now, I put a disclaimer on that. There are some who, if they could, would be. There are some who intend to be. There are some who are preparing to be members of this church or a true church. There are some who are simply waiting for the right time, attempting to learn more about us, growing in their own sense of what they are and who we are. I'm not primarily trying to insult you when I say that. But I am trying to make it clear that if it is your position that you are not responsible to be in the church of Christ and that it's something that's indifferent, something that's not critical and something that's not crucial, I want you to understand if you are not a member of the church of Christ and have not planned to be and do not long to be, in a sense you're outside when we preach these things. We're not preaching them to you. The Lord doesn't address these letters to everybody. Let him that has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And why do I say that? Because I want to stir up some holy jealousy in you that are not in the church. I want you to be, feel like you're outside. I want you to know you're not in. I want you to know that there's some things that those who are members of Christ's church get that you don't get. There's some blessings, some benefits, some privileges. Why do I want to do that? I want to rub it in? No, I want you to have those blessings, benefits, and privileges. Sometimes, though, the methodology with a couple of kids is to point to the other kid and say, you see, he got this because he acted in this way. If you had acted this way, you too would have gotten there. Sometimes one of our children does not come when we're all doing something. He decides he wants to do something else. And we have some stated meetings in our house, and we have some optional meetings in our house. Sometimes I get together to play a game and with anybody who would like to play. Somebody says, I want to go play with my favorite toy. So he does. Later on, he comes down and discovers that since he left, we changed games and now are playing one he likes. And we're about finished. And he says, why didn't I get to play? Well, because you weren't here. Well, that's not fair. You should have told me. We, got, we can't tell you everything in advance that you're going to get or miss. You should be here to learn. And you see, the Lord is identically that way. The Lord holds things secret to those who are not outside the church. And the only way you can learn them is by getting in. There are blessings and sweetnesses and experiences that will never be allowed to be experienced by the non-member of the church of Christ. There are things God's just not going to share with you. Understand that. That's why some of us pray for you. That's why some of us ask, uh, where do you belong? Where do you fit? That's why we hope that God will join you to us because we want to share what God's given us. Now, we're not talking about uh, a nice family, a good job. Lots of people have those things. We're talking about things we can't even talk about. We're talking about spiritual blessing that we can't even explain to you. We're talking about prayer meetings in which there is a sense that the church is able to enter a depth that those outside cannot. Even though they might come and participate and listen to the prayers, there is a sense that the communion and the fellowship of God's people in Christ's church, especially those that have been there the longer, can enter that no one can enter. So I want to stir some holy jealousy. I want you to go home and think, what am I missing? Is he just kidding? Now, let me tell you, we have no ulterior motives. We don't want to just have church members. Wouldn't change anything if you just joined because of that. 
We're not out to manipulate you and say, there's a secret that we've got that if you'll come and join that you'll get to know. We don't have any secrets in that sense. There's no, this isn't a mystery religion. There's no initiation rite that we don't tell anybody about. But there are pearls that cannot be cast before swine. There are holy things that should not be thrown to the dogs in the words of our Lord. I'm not calling you pigs and dogs who are not members of the church. But the parable means that there are things that aren't appropriate for the church of Christ to be giving out. That's why there are things that in that elevator or at your job, there are certain things you don't tell to those people you're witnessing to. That you love and know are true. But you have to hold some of them back. Because they're like the swine. They'll turn and rend you. They'll trample them under. They don't understand them. You'll get a, a, a blot, as the scripture says, if you speak to a fool in a certain way. Don't rebuke a scoffer. You'll get a blot, it says. I don't know what the blot is, but he may, he may give you the blot. So you have to be careful. I want you to be jealous. Some of you, I want to shock you as to the sin of your independent spirit. Me and Jesus. Some of you think, and we have a generation that's full of people that think that they, they're saved, they're going to go to heaven. Oh, it'd be nice to join the church too, but that would entail some different commitments that I'm not prepared to make. And so they're willing to follow the Lord while not following the Lord. Because you can't follow the Lord and stay aloof from his beloved bride. You can't be a member of Christ without mem being a member of his body. There's no way to separate the two. And I want to shake you. I want you to stop and examine that. And ask yourself, why am I not a member of the body of Christ? Well, somebody says, well, I am, Pastor. Well, I urge you to stick around in the next month as we preach on the doctrine of the church. I'm going to show you why you're not a member of the body of Christ if you're not a member of the body of Christ in any of its given locations. There's no such thing as true membership in the church of Christ unless, where possible, you are united and joined together with those that call themselves the church of Christ. I want to shock you as to the sin of your independence. And I want to motivate you to join with us in joining with Christ and to march with us in his army and to enjoy the feast that we regularly here enjoy. So that word, in the midst of the identification of the Christ who is holy and true, I just feel the need to tell you that. I trust that it will not offend and cause a person to go out and say, who does he think he is? I think that I've been appointed by Christ to urge men to put their lives where they belong and to bring their families under the canopy of the special blessing of God's special presence and under the, under the oversight of God's protective ordinances. I want to urge you to do it. Some of you don't know what it's costing you, so I urge you to consider it with us. Not to press you to do what's not normal or right, but to appeal to you. So understand the language. To the church in Philadelphia, right. And he just leaves out the rest of the world. The Lord's got a word for his people. The rest of you, that's not has, to, has nothing to do with you. You see the point I'm making? Now, I want to add, though, that this sermon does have some barbs intended for you who are not members of Christ's church. So I am preaching to you. But essentially... I just want the church to understand there are some wonderfully private and precious things that you can enjoy that you wouldn't have if you weren't here. And so some of these words are coming from Christ to you, and you get peculiar and special comfort from them because they're not intended for anybody but you, God's people. So drink it in. Don't resist enjoying the benefits because you've got so many loved ones who don't. That's the way it is. Pour yourself into it. 
and receive from Christ the benefits of his church. It's worth it, and you need it. Well, in the third place, not only is the author of the letter he that is holy and he that is true, but also, he says, he that has the key of David. He that has the key of David. What does that mean? Now, most folks, when they read the Revelation, come across a section like this, just skip right over it. That means no more to them than so-and-so begat so-and-so. And they stop there, and they, they get puzzled, and they think, ah, that's Revelation for you. It's got all this stuff. What does that mean? It just, it's some sort of weird phrase that nobody can understand. Why give? So they read on, probably not important. I suggest this is critical. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 22, and let me try to help you find the reference that must have been on the mind of John as the Spirit rendered these words to him. Isaiah chapter 22. Verse 20. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, and he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Now, if you were just reading through your Bible, and you came across this text one day, and then the next day you came across Revelation 3, the church of Philadelphia, would you not say, hey, that's remarkably similar language. You wouldn't have any trouble connecting those two. And knowing the Apostle John at the end of the first century being thoroughly steeped in Old Testament Scripture, you would be so shocked to think that he had this coming off his pen without thinking back to Isaiah's scroll. You would assume there's got to be reeking in his mind some connection here. Well, there is. Now, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, was to be made Hezekiah's prime minister in the place of the unworthy Shebna or Shebna. He would be placed over the house of David. The key would be laid on his shoulder, perhaps around the neck on the shoulder, hanging from a, a, a rope or a ribbon, so that he walks around and he's got the key to the house. And this signifies his being put in charge of those things which more immediately concern the regulations of the palace and the king's relations with the people. Through him, access will be gained to the king. He is in the position of mediator. Through him, important affairs in relation to the ruler and to the rule will be conducted. Large powers are granted to him in this position. He can open or shut the doors of access to royal clemency or justice. He has the key to the house. He can decide who gets the king's ear. He can decide who has a right to appeal to the king and ask for pardon or clemency. He is the one granted this discernment. He can open or shut doors of royal favor either deserved or undeserved. That's a great, powerful position, is it not? You and I know that we could never get in to see the President of the United States without first going through lots of other people. 
They've got a, they've got a concentric circle of preserved, of protectors out there and insulators. You've got to go through the ropes. You can't just write President Bush a personal letter and expect a personal response by phone that evening. Sure, come on over for supper. The Secret Service alone would, not, would be horrified at such a brash approach. Well, how about the king of Israel? Well, there's a man who has the final say as to who gets into the king's chambers, who gets the king's favors, who gets access. And it's the one who has the king, the key to his house. Well, in our passage, the clear reference is to our Lord's position and office as the dispenser of blessings and kingly gifts. David's house represents the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus has it. He has the key of David. Now you notice that in this text, he has a controversy with those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, what do you think is the significance of this little weak church of Christians over here who love the name of Jesus? They've claimed him as Messiah. They've believed the Old Testament scriptures that this is the one. And they've lost all to follow him. And there are these large, rich Jews all over the city of Philadelphia who are castigating them and opposing them and hating them and putting them down and creating habit for them. What do you think is the significance when the Lord tells this little band, addressing his letter only to them, I have the key to David, of David. You see what he's saying? I'm the one in the position to determine about who gets access to the kingdom of Israel. I'm the one in charge of the kingdom. I'm the king. In this text, not only is our Lord the prime minister of the king, he's the king. He has the key of David. He is head over the house of Israel. And he is the one that is in the position to determine who is the true Israel and who's not. Who gets in and who doesn't. He can open the door for access. He can shut it. And if he opens it, you're in. And if he shuts it, you're not getting in. You see the connection? <coughs> it is the key of David, not particularly the key of the house of David. And it may be significant that in Revelation it's the key of David, while in Isaiah it's the key of the house of David. Because the key of David is more personal even than the key of the house of David. Not only does the Lord have the power to grant access to the house, to the kingdom, but he has the key that belongs to David himself. That's the identification that he's more than just the prime minister. He's David. He's the king of Israel. He's minister and mediator, not over the house of another, as Moses was, but over the house that is his house. And he rules his house. You see, we're speaking here of the true Israel. And he has the key of the kingdom of the true Israel. And only he opens the door to Israel. So those who say they're Jews and who persecute those that love Jesus are not the true Israel and are shut out from the benefits of King David and are liars. In fact, they are such liars that God considers them to be in Satan's synagogue. And we have more to say about that in a moment, but let's continue as it says, 
after saying he has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man opens. In other words, his authority is absolute and final. Whose? No one but Jesus. He has the absolute and final authority to open and close doors. Whether doors of protection, doors of escape, or doors of access and opportunity, he has them. He opens them, he closes them. But it says that if he opens them, you can't shut them. No one can shut them. Absolute power if he shuts them. No one can open them. He is sovereign over everything. Jesus Christ is God, Lord and King. He is sovereign in the dispensing of gifts from the King to his subjects. He is sovereign in granting access to the King or withholding it. He says, he who confesses me, him will I confess. He who denies me, him will I deny. You better be on good terms with Jesus, friend. Because he's the one that's going to determine whether you get to God. And he has the absolute final authority to determine it. He shuts the door to you. You don't get open. You don't get up some other way. You won't go around and get to the celestial city. You go God's way or you don't get there. He has sovereign power in determining what is taught, who teaches it, and who is permitted to learn the will and the ways of God. He has the key. He opens the door of knowledge to dispense it to the ignorant. He opens the door of the heart to make it able to receive the knowledge dispensed. The Lord Jesus is in cut utter control of what you hear. What did we read tonight in Judges? Here this fella and these Shechemites are in great league and they're working together and they're rejoicing. And what does God do? He sends an evil spirit among them and turns fast friends into enemies. Let me tell you, if the Lord wanted to, I trust he does not wish to, but if he wanted to tonight, without changing one external circumstance, he could shut the ears of every person in this house to the word of God, and you'd never understand it, believe it, or love it again. Without changing any external circumstance. You could all keep coming, I could keep preaching, and God could shut the door of the truth, just like that. He can send an evil spirit among us and make us hate each other, hate the truth, and apostatize overnight. It's a terrible thing to live in that dependence upon God. What I'm trying to say to you is the Christian gospel and the Christian life and the Christian religion and the Christian faith is not another subject to study in school. It's not a topic to be included in a lecture series of cultural concerns at the South Mall. It is not another uh, realm of investigation. It's not another philosophy that man can take or not take. The Christian faith and the gospel is in the hands of Jesus Christ. And the truth is so in his hands that if he doesn't open your eyes to see it and your ears to hear it and your heart to love it, you'll never understand it or receive it. You're not in the position to decide whether you're going to be a Christian or not. You must decide. But in a sense, you can't. He has to grant it. 
he has the key and he opens. Nobody shuts. He shuts and nobody opens. What we're saying is simply this. No one will learn of God whom Christ does not will to learn of God. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11 and I want to show you the explicit teaching of Jesus Christ on this subject. Let's publish this abroad, brethren. If you wish to quote Jesus and talk about the Bible, let's be honest. Let's at least quote what he said. If you want to make a movie about the life of Christ, at least be honest. Don't think the rest of us have to swallow your interpretation when you call him a liar or when you omit great portions of his own words. If you didn't have the Bible, you wouldn't have a Jesus to make a movie about. There's no record of him except one little minor reference in some Roman document where he's called Crestus. You have no right to deal with Jesus apart from Scripture. And if you deal with him in Scripture, deal with him the way the Scripture deals with him. Quote him right or don't quote him. Matthew eleven twenty five. One sermon title, which I like, I think John Murray had it, God, Sovereign Lord, praying to Sovereign Lord. At that season, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you did hide these things from the wise and understanding and did reveal them to babes. God, the Father, had hidden the truths of Christ from the learned and educated men of the generation. In fact, from men who were learned and educated in the scriptures. These men knew the Bible. And God hid them from seeing Christ as who he was, which is all through the Bible. Then he says, Yea, Father, for so it was well-pleasing in your sight. He has no question about the Father's righteousness in doing this. He's hidden them because he wanted to. And then he goes on, All things have been delivered unto me, from my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Neither does any know the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son wills to reveal him. And then he makes that wonderful invitation to sinners to come to him. It's interesting, isn't it, that in this passage, joined tightly together is this open universal invitation to every sinner to come to Christ. Don't tarry. Save yourself in the same context and same breath as saying, you won't know God unless I reveal him to you. Absolute dependence on the sovereignty of Jesus Christ to decide whether he wants to let you in. And an open overture of mercy to everybody to come and be received. All in the same breath. You tell me. You explain it. I can't explain it. I just know it's scripture. It's true. It's blessed. On this side of the conversion, I understand it. On the other side, you tell me about that. I would have thought you were a fool. But as a Christian, I know exactly what he means. I can't explain it. But I understand it. But what's he saying essentially for our purposes tonight? If you want to know God, there's only one person who can get you to know God. It's Jesus Christ. And if he decides not to let you know it, you're not going to know God. To him, whomsoever, the Son wills to reveal him.
You're shut up to Christ, friend. We're dependent on Christ. Huh. Note these people in the synagogue of Satan reviling, blaspheming, misrepresenting the blessed name of Christ in order to crush the church. Because, see, it is the universal and perpetual goal of the world to take the crown from the brow of Jesus. That's where it all boils down to. That's what it's all about. They can tolerate extensive amounts of religion. They cannot tolerate the least bit of Jesus as he's presented in the gospel. They can pray in public to God, but not the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They can't bring themselves to say it. Not even our evangelical leadership can bring themselves to say it because of what it would cost. I'll tell you, it would cost too. I'll guarantee you, it will cost. The first evangelist led leading a public prayer on the steps of the Capitol or anywhere else who said, in the name of Jesus through whom alone anybody can ever get to God. If ever said it, which is utterly true, he'd never be invited back. In fact, I would dare say tonight, we could not discuss the name of one prominent evangelical had it not been for his willingness to compromise at this point through the years. He would not be famous. He would not have been invited to the White House regularly. He would not have been invited to Moscow. They can't stomach a clear-cut, universally consistent message that includes and only includes Jesus as God through whom alone. And it's ironic, isn't it, that a man who's built his ministry with a sign behind his podium... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Had his golden opportunity at his 70th birthday to exalt the name, and he couldn't say it. You know why? Because our generation has been given over to hating his name. It's always been the same. Here's a little church in Philadelphia. Not many going to join that church. Because they're narrow. They're not big-minded. They're not worldly-minded. These people are demanding of such a narrow religion. Surely they can't be right. We have to rid ourselves of such. If you let people like that run the world, you know what? Before long, nobody will be able to think for himself. There'll be no freedom. The pornographers will probably have to go out of business. Freedom of speech will be killed. If you let these Christians control everything, we wouldn't be able to devour our children with drugs anymore. They would keep us from killing our unborn. Here's a church grieving over a miscarriage while the universe around us is killing them voluntarily. The Lord Jesus is in the only place where men can be granted access to God and the knowledge of I tell you, the reason some of you may be sitting here and you don't know what we're talking about is simply because you have never bowed to Jesus. You've never received him as he's offered in the gospel. Your problem is not you don't comprehend all the intricacies of Bible truth. Your problem is you haven't repented of your unbelief. You're opposing Christ, and he's opposing you as a result. And he's not opening your access to God. What utter folly, therefore, brethren, for these modern self-righteous blasphemers to call themselves teachers of Christianity 
religious preachers and leaders, interpreters of God's law, while at the same time denying the superior kingship of Christ earned by his substitutionary death on the cross for sins and secured by his resurrection from the dead. They deny his vicarious death. They don't deny he died. They just deny it had any... They deny his miracles. Jefferson wrote his own Bible and left them all out. They deny his resurrection. They deny his second coming in judgment of all men. Yet they claim to be his representatives in teaching the meaning of his word. Oh, the vanity of our generation. Oh, the terrible judgment awaiting those who have exalted themselves above God's beloved Son. In Luke eleven fifty two, will not turn, the Lord speaks to the scribes and the lawyers and he says, You have shut up the key of knowledge, have not opened it, and you've kept others from it. Because there is a tradition that when a scribe was initiated into his office at about age 30 by the leading rabbi, that he was granted the key of knowledge. Remember that in Matthew 13, in one of the parables, the Lord spoke of a scribe who out of the treasure, out of his treasures brings knowledge. Old and new. A scribe was seen as one who had the key of knowledge in his hands. He was supposed to be an expert in the scriptures and he in his teaching could uncover the great mysteries of God and the truth to others and use that key to open the door of knowledge. Well, these in our day, as they've been throughout the generations of the church, had the key of knowledge and they shut it. They shut the door and threw it away. They were supposed to search the scriptures and teach and guard the scriptures and they now deny the scriptures. They were given the key of knowledge, and they misused it. But in this text, Christ has the key of the throne of God, from which flows all the goodness and the blessing of life to God's people, and all the knowledge and wisdom. Christ alone has the key. However, Christ is also seen in the Scripture as delegating this key to selected representatives. Now, that's an interesting parallel. He has the key. But he has granted real authority to others in using this key that he possesses. Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 16. Far from an elevation of Simon Peter to the papacy, this text, which knows nothing of such a blasphemous thing, merely grants to the apostles and the church in their train certain authority from Christ. Matthew 16, 19, based upon the foundation of the confession of Peter's faith in Christ as the Son of God, Christ is going to give to Peter and the apostles something. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's pretty big authority to give to man, isn't it? And yet he did. Through these representatives to the church, Christ grants a certain authority in teaching and discipline. Whosoever sins you remit shall be remitted in heaven. Whosoever sins you keep and retain, they shall be retained. As one said, a certain high privilege as dispensers of the offer of salvation through faith in his name. Christ is always head of the church. Not any man. 
Christ is the king in Zion. Christ is David's son and heir. He has the key of David. And yet there are men to whom he's imparted this power for their use under his authority and with his backing. Therefore, where men depart from his word in their office of preaching and teaching, they no longer qualify to represent him in ruling or teaching. Where they are functioning in conformity to his word, however, they have his backing and full authority and are to be, in the words of Hebrews 13, obeyed. There's two sides of it. Christ has the key. And he's granted the privilege of certain appointees under him to administer that key in opening doors. And they go throughout the world opening doors of knowledge by preaching and teaching. And where they open doors, he stands behind them in full support. And as long as they preach and teach his word, if you don't obey them when they preach and teach, you're disobeying him. And you have, he, they have his full authority to pronounce upon you the curses that come upon those who don't obey. Obey them that have the rule over you as they that must give account to God that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable to you. In summary, we must conclude that if a man wants to get to God, he has to come through Jesus. If a man wants God's favor, he cannot obtain it apart from Christ. If he wants God's protection in the time of calamity, he must have it in league with King Jesus. No recognition of and submission to the rightful king, then no receiving the benefits he bestows. What king in his right mind is going to grant equal benefits to subjects who refuse to recognize his rights to the throne? You ever known such a king that was such a fool? Our Lord isn't. He is not mocked. Christ is central in all saving religion, crucial in all saving knowledge indispensable in all saving experience. But there's something that always happens when people follow him and embrace him. Persecution follows. You know, we once may have thought that following Jesus was sort of a sweet trip. Not so. No such thing. It's one of the hardest roads I can imagine traveling. This is no easy trip. This is fraught with dangers and perils and snares and nets and potholes. And the enemy is without and within seeking to devour and destroy, roaring as a lion. To follow Christ is to have trouble. To follow Christ is to be persecuted. Therefore, we come to the second major section of our letter, having considered the author. Let us look for just a minute at the comfort of the letter. And again, he says that same thing in the formula in Revelation 3, verse 8, I know your works. Now, in most of these epistles, when we hear that, we start trembling. Because we've been taught and we teach our children, God's watching. The Lord knows. That's what we do with our children when we're trying to ascertain whether they've been telling the whole truth. We don't have any way of knowing for sure, so what we resort to is the Lord knows. So far, God's granted us a good measure of success with that because our children do have some fear of God in their minds and they have some concept that our God is real. 
And so we say, well, we can't know for sure, but God knows. Now, are you prepared to deal with God directly with this? Because you know that if he spanks, it's going to be a lot more difficult than if mom and dad discipline you. So that helps. But in this letter, when he says, I know your works, there does not follow some listing of all their sins and shortcomings. This is not designed to say, I know. I've got your number. I'm going to get you. Some of you preparing for pastoral oversight meetings, tremble in your boots. You don't know what I'm going to ask, and you wonder if I'm going to find out what it is you know. You're checking around the house subconsciously. You don't want to do it overtly, but something in you is kind of afraid that maybe I'm going to find something out you didn't even know about. You've got that good, healthy sense about you. That's not a bad thing. It's good incentive. It's a means of grace. If you get it all straight before I get there, great. I don't care. I'm not, I don't hope I find it. I'm not giving tests hoping you miss some, some questions. No trick questions. But you see, the Lord here is not doing that. He's not saying, I know your works. And then you begin to back up and cover your tracks. And say, uh-oh, what does he know that he's going to say now? <laughs> no. This is not a disturbing reminder that none of their evil deeds have escaped his eye. That he sees their sins and will punish them. But rather, this is a comforting reminder that though others look down on them, relatively weak and small, he knows their faithfulness. He knows they've kept his word. Though all else miss our virtue, our obedience, our faithfulness, Christ sees it. And don't you sometimes wish that the people of the world would notice that you're really a nice person? I mean, really, you get weary. They don't wreck. You do something for them and they hate you. If they just, if they got rid of you from their workplace, they'd lose the most benevolent person there. I don't mean to puff you up. But if all they had were those other people, they'd have nothing but pilferers and thieves. A few Christians sprinkled here and there keep the meat from rotting. You take them out and the stuff goes putrid on you. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. If they take you away, what's the world going to do? And yet all the time, they treat you like the worst and the off-scouring and the lowest scum of the earth. They look down on you, they humiliate you, they treat you like you're nothing. Well, it's all right. What'd you expect? They did that to you, Lord. What'd you expect? They took God and did that to him. What do you think they're going to do with you who are nothing but a pile of dirt? But he's the Lord. He's saying, hey, that doesn't matter. I see, I know. There's nothing that you're doing that's right that I haven't, I'm not taking note of. Your obedience and faithfulness, Christ knows. And he rewards. Not only does he know the bad that we hide from others, he also knows the good that others ignore. The Lord Jesus knows. If there's any clear theme in these letters, it is this. Be faithful to Christ. Be faithful to Christ's law. Be faithful to Christ's church. Be faithful to Christ's reputation. Be faithful to his worship. To death, if it takes it. And he will richly reward you with life and peace and blessing and everlasting security. Quickly turn back to Isaiah chapter 49. This is nothing new. Now, the people of God have always needed this comfort, and they've always possessed it. Isaiah 49, verse 4. 
But I said, I've labored in vain. You ever said that? This is Israel speaking, the people of God. And they're looking out at their track record and their life and their accomplishments. And they're saying, what's the, what's worth it? What's the use? It's all been for nothing. Some of you that are married to unsaved people, you just wonder if it's worth it. Some of you that have prayed for years for somebody, you just sometimes you wonder, what am I putting up with it for? Some of you that are suffering wrongfully from those in the world, have you labored in vain? You prayed for souls to be saved. You pray for people that, to come to church that you know, and they say they'll come and they don't show up, and you think, what's the use? Why keep praying? You tell people about the truth, and they don't want to listen, and you think, why even tell them? You don't cheat on your taxes, and your income is not as much as theirs because they do. And they got to go buy something you'd like to buy, and you can't because you were honest. That's the only reason. And the Lord doesn't always come and give you the extra money to go buy it. He doesn't work magic all the time. Sometimes he just lets you pay the price for honesty. What's the use? I mean, it's so tangled now that even if you're honest, there are other people whose lives are affected by your honesty and they try to force you to be dishonest because it'll affect them. If you report your taxes right, the government's going to find out they paid you. And they don't want to know that they paid because then the government wonders where they got that money because they said they didn't have any. And they're going to audit them. So they come to your house and say, you don't better not turn me in, doctor. You won't work in this job. I've labored in vain. I put up with this. What's it, what good is it? Maybe a church feels that. Lord, we're trying to buy a piece of land. And apparently one man is stopping it. Now, we know you may want us not to have it, and we're perfectly content with that, but this is really weird. Is that the way it goes, that when a church would like to go build, like to move to a wide open space and have parking so kids aren't in danger of getting run over and so people that come to church won't have to park around the block and down the street? Is there something about this, Lord? Is this the way the church... Zoning laws are blocking out the gospel? Is that what it's come to? That's, you might be tempted sometime to think, what's it worth? And you invite somebody to church and he goes just before he comes and he asks a friend what he knows about the church. And the friend who's supposed to be a Christian tells him, any place but there. I've labored in vain. That's the temptation. But look on. I have spent my strength for naught in vanity. Ah, yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord. And my recompense with me. I tell you, brethren, it's simple. But that's the truth. He knows, and he's going to reward you. Grow not weary in well-doing. You shall reap if you faint not. I know your works. What comfort. But there's one last thing before we conclude, and I... I'm at page four, but we must conclude just so you can digest this, and we, the Lord willing, will come back and continue at another time. But back in Revelation 3, verse 9, the comfort of the Lord includes an asset, a little fact that maybe you don't think about much, but verse 9 of Revelation 3 says, 
Speaking of those that are causing all the trouble for these saints that have not denied his name, that have kept his word, I give of the synagogue of Satan and of them that say they are Jews and they're not, but do lie. Behold, I'll make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I've loved you. Not only is the Lord knowing what you're doing and going to reward your faithfulness to the truth and to his name, but he's going to make all your enemies know that he loves you, not them. Now, this is not a promise as some took it. I don't know if you're aware of what Rome does with this passage, but can you imagine what Rome did with this? Rome believes this means that Jesus has promised that the leaders of her church will have people come and worshiping at their feet and kissing their toes. And this applies to the prelates of the church. That's not what the scriptures are teaching here, brethren. Let us not rest the scriptures to our own destruction. This is a promise that all those who reject Christ will one day, figuratively speaking, as it were, fall at the feet of those that received him. They won't be groveling over us. That's not the point here. But they will know that he loved us. And as it were, they'll wish they had it. They'll know that what they did earned the response of God to them. That they that believed not on the name of the only begotten Son of God deserved death. That they were condemned not because God is mean, but because they didn't believe. And they'll know that God loved the little Philadelphia. The day will come. They'll see who is the true Israel of God. They'll know who knew the truth and loved it. And they'll all come and surround you as it were. And fall at your feet in honor of you. Because Christ has honored you and will honor you. Well, do you get That's not to make us gloat and to strut around saying, yeah, we're better than we never can get very far away from that sensitive memory of the fact that we were once as they are. And that if we weren't under the grace of a, of a God who so transcends our knowledge, we can't understand what he's, why he does it, we would not be here. We're not gloating in anything other than God's grace, but we're boasting in that. And he does love his people. I want to comfort you, church. I want to encourage you. You have taken a position that is not popular in Christendom, much less outside of Christendom. Your church is not going unless God does an unprecedented work is not going to have much acceptance among Christians. Brethren, I have to say this. There are visitors here. I trust that if you have a real problem with this intellectually, you'll come and talk to me about it. Let me explain it to you. But I have to tell you, I warn you. It appears that there's going to be a Billy Graham crusade in Albany. Our church is not able to participate. But churches all throughout the capital district will. And they will assume that the reason we didn't is because we don't love souls and want to see them saved. I've already been told that. And they'll spread it. And we'll go down in history with others who through history could not in good conscience participate with certain methods and certain approaches because their Bibles wouldn't let them. And it wasn't because they didn't want to cooperate. And it wasn't because they didn't love the good motives of others. And it wasn't because they didn't want to see people saved. And it's not because they're not going to pray that God will use crooked sticks and draw straight lines. It is because that as they read the word of Christ, they have no choice. It grieves them. But you've taken a position as a church because of the things you believe and preach. 
that some are going to wonder what kind of sanity you have that you wouldn't participate with one of the most respected evangelicals in history. And I am not opposed to the man Billy Graham. I frankly love him. I've prayed for him a long time. Even contributed at one time. Not opposing him. I think there's great nobility in him. And I think there are great virtues in him. Don't misunderstand me. And I think that he has preached a measure of the gospel that God has used. Don't misunderstand me. But that's a far cry from my being able to identify my name and my church's name with a public movement that the Bible is utterly opposed to. And I don't have time to tell you all the reasons why. But I'm simply saying that that's the kind of stance that if you take, you're going to get some real opposition from some good people who don't understand you. Because you will not reduce the gospel to a cheap, quickie solution to every problem in the world at the floor of a great arena in a five-minute conversation and the signing of a name. Because you know that to follow Christ means much more than that. And if you are with me and have had the experience I've had throughout my life, you know that those things very seldom bear any lasting fruit to the glory of Christ in the lives of those who profess to follow. It's a very real statistical fact. Well, you've taken a position of the church that has been the reason that you are small, relatively speaking. Now, we got 78 members about that. We're one of the larger Reformed Baptist churches. We may be the largest in the state of New York. I say that because I'm bragging. I say that grievingly. I want you to understand the perspective here. 78 may be the largest group of church members in a Reformed Baptist church in New York State. What does that tell you? We're living in Philadelphia here. And you know the reason we ain't big? There's one reason. What we believe and preach. The word which we keep. The name which we will not deny. Not boasting that some of you aren't chickens on the job. I'm not puffing you up. I'm not trying to make our visitors think that we're the most spiritual and righteous people in the world. I'm telling you, though, that you have paid a cost. And the Lord knows, and the Lord will reward you. You need to know that, brethren. Now, we've got to make sure that it's for the truth that we pay the cost. We've got to make sure that we're not making enemies because we're obnoxious, holier-than-thou brats. And if anybody takes what I've said tonight and runs out here and starts boasting about this and throwing that kind of thing around, if I find out about it, I'm going to have a hard time with you. And you may have a hard time with me. It's going to cost you. You're going to be small. You're going to have little strength. But the Lord knows. I want to encourage you to receive the comfort of people that have bought the truth and sold it not. And I want to invite you who haven't to join us. I can promise you that it's well worth it. You shall never pay a cost for the truth that is not overabundantly amply rewarded by the one for whose sake you bought the truth. I charge you children, live your lives to listen to what your mom and dad teach you in the catechisms, when they read the Bible, when they tell you what Jesus is and how he saves people. Don't you throw that out because some of your friends at school or some of your friends that you play with think you're bad and think there's something weird about you. 
Jesus knows and he'll reward you little ones if you believe the faith of your fathers and you follow the faith of your mothers the Lord Jesus knows your works and I say to the Albany Baptist Church even as the Lord would say to Philadelphia he knows your works and it ain't all bad folks we trail your case we probe your conscience we preach against your sins we bother you we preachers try our best to bother your consciences you come filing out the foyer saying pastor thank you I needed to hear that oh I've got so much to do to straighten my life out and you're thankful and you appreciate that probing but brethren let me tell you my honest pastoral view of you I have high regard and respect for this church because you have paid a cost and the Lord Jesus himself knows it And he will not fail to reward you. May God give us grace not to shrink back, but to go on further and more prolifically in the things we've formally embraced. To learn them better, to stand on them more solidly, and to defend them with our lives in view of the great reward of him who says, I know your works. We haven't had time to go into the promise But the Lord willing, the next time we'll expound that promise. And I believe that you'll find great encouragement in the truth. May God help us to be a church that is able to receive from our Lord no rebukes. Because we've kept the word of his patience and have not denied his name. But to hear nothing but encouraging promises of reward for that which we hold dear. Let us pray. Our Father, I know that what I've said is delicate and sensitive. I know that there are some who may look at us and think, oh, they think they're so good. Lord, you know our hearts. You know what we think of ourselves. But you know this pastor's heart that longs for his dear people who really have determined to take up identity with those who are not thought highly of. I want them to be encouraged by your word. I want them to know that you see. Lord, we pray that if there are among us those that have yet in their heart embraced the things they say they embraced, perhaps even some who haven't even read them sufficiently, who don't care, who maybe think it's not important to love the truth and embrace it and to clearly understand it, Lord, forgive them. Help us that we may not hold back our hearts from all that is the truth for fear of what it may cost. Make us a people who are unashamed of our Lord and his word, but confess him gladly and completely. Teach us wisdom among those with whom we live and work that we may not cast pearl before swine, but Lord, give us boldness that we may not be ashamed of our Redeemer. And Lord, do look upon this church in mercy. Oh, behold it, Lord. It has preached what is not popular and it's paid some cost for it, though not to the shedding of blood. Chasten us, Lord, and correct us, but don't forget that we're here because we long to hear more of these things that have separated us from the world. We don't want what they know. We don't want what they have. We don't want what they give. We want your blessing. We want your favor. We want your reward. And that's more than enough for us. Lord, hear our prayer. Encourage the people in the truth. Help those who are our guests that they may not be driven away, but drawn closer. And may those who are strangers to the grace of Christ in saving faith be brought nigh to him 
by the power of your spirit. Lord, our God, have mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.